Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are with the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my friend and co-host mike perry and we got a, a topic today that you know i'm pretty passionate about mike yeah no you are i feel like you're going to be just scribbling notes the entire time and i might have to take over um no this is this is going to be a good one this is uh this is in your wheelhouse today eric that's for sure yeah and in, in our course you know we have a whole section that i do on on just recovery and and uh um readiness and a lot of it we uh, you know i constantly refer to this book uh good to go and we're lucky enough to have the author of that book with us today christy ishwan that she's the author of good to go what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery and she's the co-host of emerging form a podcast about the creative process and she's a lifetime athlete herself uh she's raised in europe and north america on team rosignold uh, uh nordic ski racing squad um, she's the former lead science writer for 538 and was previously a health columnist for the Washington Post. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, and she's been a contributing ed editor to Runner's World uh, and Bicycling, and she's appeared in dozens of publications, um, and you'll find out all the stuff on, on the bio that you can see in the notes. Uh, but I can't wait to get, get started here with Christy. Welcome on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's dive right in and start by kind of telling what got you intrigued into looking deeper into the science and, and also the business of the current recovery market. Sure. I'm really glad that you mentioned the word business because that that's a, a large part of it. And we can get to that in a minute. But my interest in this really stemmed from my own experience as an athlete. Um, yeah, I'm retired from serious competition now and have been for quite a while. Um, but I look back on my um, my career as an elite athlete and I realized that the thing that sort of held me back the most uh, was recovery. It was something that I sort of understood too late in the game, you know, the importance of it. And, and really, you know, I, I look, I'm happy with my, my athletic career and all that. But when I look back and think, what could I have done better? It's recovery. And it's really interesting. While I was researching the book, I talked to so many professional athletes, both uh, current and retired. And this was a recurring theme. It was something that, you know, I think some of this is that when you're young, when you're in your twenties, you have a lot more resilience as you get older, recovery becomes more and more important. And I think athletes come to understand as they go on in their careers, just how important it is. And I think a lot of people have these regrets like, oh, I wish I would have given it, you know, more credence early on. 
So that was kind of part of my interest. But then the other thing that happened is that in the years since I had retired, what I noticed, you know, and I, I still do all these sports. I'm very active. I, I'm still sort of in the game, just not uh, doing it at a, a high competitive level. And what I've seen is that there's just been this influx of businesses and marketing around recovery. And so recovery has really become a, a product. It's something that is being sold to people as, you know, something that they can purchase or that they can, you know, have services for and all that. And, and so I really wanted to dive in, you know, as a profess profession, I'm a, a science writer, and I really wanted to dig into the science and say, you know, does any of this stuff really pan out? Um, how strong is this, the science for this stuff? Is this something that we all need? And, you know, what works and what doesn't? Well, and I, I know Mike's got a, a follow-up to talk about kind of the industry and the business of all this thing. Mm -hmm. but uh, And I'm obviously familiar with your work, but but to, to endear you to Mike, I know there's a story that this all kind of started with studying beer, which hopefully we can get oh, back yeah. to, which in, which which will certainly warm Mark's, uh, Mike's are. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a beer lover. A lot of my runner friends are as well. And and uh, I actually designed and carried out a study to look at at the effect of beer, you know, post-exercise, post-running beer on, on recovery. And it was really interesting. And I think, yeah, this is actually the first chapter of my book uh, that describes this, this study that we did. And, you know, I was involved in putting it together. So we really did our best to try and design a good study. But at the end of it, I realized that I didn't really trust the results. And I think it was really a good exercise in understanding how fraud it can be interpreting some of these um, research studies on athletic performance, because it's so complex and performance is so complex. And it's very easy to get a misleading result that then you can go run with and really market. And yeah, so the takeaway from our study was that beer was great for recovery in women and it was terrible for men. And, you know, if you're like me and you are a woman married to a man, this is great news because you can say, okay, honey, you know, no beer for you. You're our designated driver. You know, <laughs> this, this is me. It's recovering. science. Yeah, uh, but of course it really, you know, I understood very easily that this was not a result that we could put much credence in. And in the book, I really go through, you know, some of the reasons for that and the lessons that I think that offers for how we should interpret scientific results. So don't give up, very Mike. Cool. You're you're N of one. I would keep I would keep going. Right. right. And there's I think, hope. you know, there's that's, hope. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the big, big lessons. And I think um, as I was researching this book, I, I was very, became very disillusioned kind of with some of the science in, in the performance space. And this is not a diss on the, the researchers who are doing this. Um, these are very hard problems that they're studying. There's a lot of variability, natural variability in, in our physiology. And so it's very hard to sort of pin down some of this stuff. But one of the fundamental problems that we have with a lot of these studies is that they tend to be very small. And I mean, so small, a, a typical study might have 12 people, and that's just too few people to really be able to draw uh any kind of definitive conclusions. And, you know, when I take these studies to people in other fields, researchers in other fields, they just kind of laugh, like, how is this acceptable? You know, and, and there are reasons for it. It's very difficult to put on some of these studies. You have to bring people into the lab and they undergo a lot of testing and, and whatnot. So it's not that the researchers are trying to do bad research. It's just that sort of the, the way the standards of the field have been for a long time, um, have not been rigorous enough to get good answers. But this is something that's happily changing. There's now movement within the field to sort of do more rigorous research and to overcome some of these problems. But it's challenging and it's not something that's going to be solved overnight. But I would just counsel people, you know, if you're looking at a study 
about performance or exercise and there is uh you know 20 people or, or 12 people i think you have to be really careful about really interpreting much from that it may or may not have any relevance but then how are we supposed to cherry pick all the data and you know make right? it sound like we know everything um, i know no. i know yeah um all right so when we're talking about recovery, how big of an industry has recovery become and why do you think that's the case? Oh, I think it's the case because you know, everyone's looking for an edge. And again, like I was saying earlier, as you get older, this becomes more important. So it's sort of a growing industry. You know, every athlete is getting older every year. And so they're realizing, oh, I need to, to get better recovery and what can I do? And so I think it's it's also an obvious thing, you know. Uh, training is stuff that, that athletes have, have to do. It's harder to sell products on that. Although of course there's plenty of products around training, but I think it's just sort of open for that because there are these things and, and the promise of it is so alluring because it's something, you know, especially you could do to give, give yourself an edge. And yeah, this is, this is a multimillion dollar business easily. Now, some of that is, is there's much higher public consciousness about it with the rise of people like Andrew Huberman and Peter Atia and so forth, and and even people like Joe Rogan, you know, promoting different different uh, recovery modalities. But in terms of vetting, like okay, what actually works, and that's what the 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 book does a really elegant job of kind of looking at what has some actual significant and substantial research behind it. Are there any modalities that stood out to you as you went through them that that really had the best solid research? And on the flip side, is there any that the, it doesn't match their popularity and the research behind it in terms yeah. of having that big gap. Yeah, well, that's easy. And I guess I just want to start by saying there are a lot of people that have podcasts out there on performance. And I would just say anyone who is also selling you a product. So if they're telling you how great supplements are, and by the way, you can buy them for, you know, such and such, or they're running those ads, uh, that really, you know, that is a huge red flag. I just think you can, you can dismiss that kind of nonsense. And I have a whole, you know, when you ask what's something that doesn't work, very easily, the, the the really easy answer there is supplements. I have an entire chapter in the book, sort of outlining why supplements are so problematic. One of one of them is just that they, they don't work. There's very little evidence for any of this stuff, and even the things you know that people say you know really work. The 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 evidence is very very flimsy. So, for instance, something like creatine, which is not used so much for recovery but for performance. Um, yeah, there've been a lot of studies done on that. These small little studies. It's again, it's very easy to design a study that will look positive when you, you use these sort of bad study designs. Um, but supplements are also problematic for another reason. In the book, I outline multiple um, athletes who are actually banned from competition because they inadvertently ingested a banned substance through a supplement. And you know, there's this idea that you can vet the company making the supplement. And well, I just I just get supplements from the good companies, but you know, the the supply chain comes from all the same places. You know, a lot of this stuff is manufactured in China. You know, you're getting it overseas, so it's really hard. Uh, to be able to really know what you're getting. And this isn't regulated. A lot of people don't understand that there's not a lot of regulation around supplements. Uh, there's very little policing of it. Um, you know, every every day almost, I will get notices from the FDA of where they found supplements that have, uh, for instance, one common thing will be performance uh, 
supplements that will have some sort of banned drug in them. So basically it's like probably someone's trying to offload this drug they can't sell anymore. So they put them in supplements. And so, yeah, the stuff may seem to work because it has a dangerous uh, substance in it, um, but, but they really can be um, bad for your health. I have a, a, an example in the, the book of a swimmer who actually missed the Olympics because she tested positive for a substance that she ingested from a supplement she got from her sponsor. So yeah, that's another thing that I'll say about about supplements is that, you know, almost every uh, athlete these days is sponsored by some kind of supplement company. And so you can say, well, you have to take supplements to be an athlete, or you can say, well, this is how athletes are funding, you know, the, the sort of fundamental way that athletes are paid is a little bit broken in this, you know, so we're given this idea that these things are necessary, because, you know, they're being paid to tell you that that this stuff works. And I think you need to be really careful. Um, any athlete who is on the Olympic, you know, sort of uh, circuit who's being tested, drug tested, knows that there are a lot of things, you know, they're going to be very careful about what they're ingesting because as an athlete, you are responsible for what goes into your body. So, so anyway, a supplements, I would just say hard stop. If you're a woman who's menstruating, you may need iron, but again, you need to test. You don't just decide that that's the case because there's also a condition of iron overload. And in fact, I know an elite runner who had this happen. She thought she was low on iron. So she started taking iron and was getting worse and worse. And it turned out that she had this genetic condition where she was, uh, her body was storing too much iron and some of this, the uh, symptoms can be the same. So that's the thing that you should stay away, away from. It's just a really easy, like hard, no, save your money. It's not going to help you. The thing that really works the best is something that doesn't cost anything. So that's good news, right? And that is sleep. It is really hands down. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing that comes close to sleep when it comes to recovery. And so a lot of people will say, oh, they kind of dismiss this, like, well, sleep, I already do that. But the thing is, so many athletes uh, don't prioritize sleep. And I think this is something in our culture that's very widespread. Um, people, you know, they, they don't put the, the kind of priority on sleep that they need to. They are skimping on sleep. This is especially true of um, high performing, you know, you'll have these executives that are also doing Ironman or something like that, and they will be getting by on five hours of sleep and they are just wrecking their recovery. The thing that was really interesting that I learned while researching the book, this is fascinating, is that people who are chronically sleep de deprived basically lose their ability to like notice their deficiencies. And so they basically get pretty good at coping with the deficiencies. And so they become invisible to them. So they say, oh yeah, I'm fine on five hours of sleep, but really they aren't, you know, it's like, you may think you're doing okay, but if you were to actually get the eight or nine hours that your body wants, you would be so much better. And you just don't know that because you've never done it. And I think it actually takes some effort to, to make sleep a priority and to get this good sleep. And, you know, sometimes people have trouble sleeping and there are a lot of things that you can do even just, you know, most of these things are very simple fixes that don't cost a lot of money. You know, making sure your bedroom is an appropriate temperature, keeping the light out, things like that. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that people can do, but it's one of the things that people dismiss and get wrong most easily. All right. So you've covered, we've talked about sleep and the importance of it, but we also want to talk about another thing, which is hydration. And, and in your book, um, you, you definitely, uh, you know, bring out some facts that uh, sort of push against some of the long-term or long-held beliefs. Um, talk about hydration and, and why the common guidelines are, aren't really that good. Yeah. 
So basically what's happened is we have a bunch of companies that are marketing uh, hydration products and they've really, um, Gatorade has an entire uh, research program that they fund, the Gatorade Science, what is it called? Gatorade Science Center or something. Sorry, I'm getting the name incorrect, but they fund a lot of research. And when you fund research, you know, saying hydration, you know, looking at all the ways that hydration is important, you're going to find all the ways that hydration is important, but you may be missing the forest for the trees. And so it turns out from a physiological perspective, your body is very, very good at handling a little bit of dehydration. <clears throat> so when you exercise, you're going to be losing some fluids. Um, this is why your kidneys hold on to water. You, there's a whole feedback mechanism with hormones. I, I don't want to get into the physiology. It's a little bit boring. Um, but, but basically, our bodies are designed to be able to cope with some fluid loss during exercise. Um, our ancestors, you know, were not keeling over because they didn't have Gatorade when they were out hunting or, or whatever, your body is actually very adept at being able to cope with this. And our bodies actually have a very sophisticated system for ensuring that we're hydrated. It's called thirst. And so there's this idea, and I can't count the number of times I see this in the media. Oh, you can't rely on your thirst. By the time you're thirsty, it's too late. Well, that's actually nonsense. If you look at it from the scientific perspective, if you actually talk to physiolo physiologists, you know, scientists who study human physiology, this just isn't true. You know, thirst is your body telling you that you need, you need to get some fluids into you and it's perfectly fine to drink to thirst. Now, this isn't to say that you shouldn't be planning. I mean, you need to have fluids available when you're going to need them. If I'm going to go out for a two hour run in the heat, I know that I'm going to get thirsty and I'm going to need water. So I should bring some, but this idea that you need to start drinking before thirst and that you need, you need to really um, drink to a particular uh, schedule um, can be actually very dangerous. In fact, um, there's now a lot of the big races like marathons and Ironman and things like that. Uh, the, the medical teams will actually now assume that if someone is staggering in there, you know, all of these signs that are also signs of dehydration, they now assume that that person is overhydrated because this, this problem has become so dire that um, I was unable to find a single instance of a person dying of dehydration in a marathon or any kind of event like this. But I did find multiple examples of people of dying from overhydration. It's actually a very dangerous condition. And it happens because people have been convinced that they need to drink, 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 drink. And what ends up happening is your blood becomes too dilute. Um, you can get swelling in the brain. It's actually a fatal condition. It can be. And so it's really dangerous uh, to just drink um, according to some kind of schedule. Thirst really is the best metric that you can use. And again, it doesn't mean that you wait till you're dying of thirst and really, really thirsty to drink something. Um, but if you're if you're having to force yourself to drink and it doesn't doesn't taste good and it feels like you're kind of choking it down, that's probably your body telling you that you don't need it. But you know what has happened is, and this is kind of an example of something that happens all across the recovery spectrum is that you have these companies that have products and so they're they're sending messages that are you know beneficial to their product so you know we want you to buy more sports drinks we want you to buy and one of the biggest scams are these electrolyte tablets which cost almost nothing you know they have a huge markup you don't need to take an electrolyte tablet you know electrolytes are just salts um, they're found in all of the food that you eat. Um, there's another example of an athlete in my, in my book who, uh, was banned from competition because she took an electrolyte tablet that inadvertently, you know, had was tainted with something else. So I think, you know, the idea that you need these special things is, is just marketing and that's all it is. And I think people need to be able to recognize that that's what it is. 
And and that marketing machine is pretty powerful because oh, you know, so even powerful. And, and we see it, you know, with with Mike has has uh kids that are involved in youth sports and I've coached youth sports for many years to see how quickly you had mom running to the fence with the Gatorade. And it's like yeah. little Johnny did not get dehydrated running 60 feet to first base, yeah. three quarter speed. You don't need to replenish anything right now. Um, so, That's right. It, and, and so even if we want to just a little bit deeper into the hydration is in terms sure. of what that fluid makeup is, if just plain old water versus needing something more than that. And when that time actually does come. Yeah, for the most part, you just need water. Um, I think one exception is that, you know, if you're doing a long endurance event, um, you may need some sugar and things too. Like it, there's kind of, I think one thing that has been conflated a little bit is that, um, you know, when when you're doing exercise for more than 90 minutes, let's say that that's kind of a good, good uh, rule of thumb for a um, threshold, you know, over 90 minutes, you may start to start, you know, digging into your glycogen stores. This is the sugar that your muscles use to, to power themselves. And so it can be very beneficial and performance enhancing to take, you know, sports drink has in addition to the salts and water, it also has uh, sugar and that's helpful when you're doing that. And so it doesn't have to come in a liquid. Although I think, you know, if I'm doing a marathon, it's easier to drink some calories than to try and eat them sometimes, you know, gels are maybe kind of an in-between thing. Um, so that that's an example of where you need something. Um, Again, if you're exercising for long periods of time, you're going to need some water and you may start to you know, crave a salty snack or something like that. You know, I like to say, you know, when you finish, finish your exercise bout, you don't necessarily need to take electrolytes. You can eat a salty pretzel or something like that. And again, your body has ways of telling you it needs this. This is why you have that hankering for you know, potato chips or something salty. It's because your body wants that. And yeah, there, there are different electrolytes, potassium and, and whatnot, but we do get these in, the, in our foods <clears throat> and you don't have such a great need that, that you need this. I mean, this idea that you have to have a perfectly, you know, scientifically validated mixture of something to drink. This is, again, this is marketing from the sports drink companies and uh, the purveyors of these products. Um, it's fine to just eat regular food and drink water. Um, you, you don't need all this other stuff. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. All right. So here we are. We, let's talk about probably the trendiest recovery tool that's out there. And it's ironic that it's trendy is that ice baths. Cause if you oh, read yeah. ancient, ancient Stoics talked yeah. about doctors prescribing ice baths, but um, you, you know, and then a not too distant second to that is, is using sauna and heat. So talk mm -hmm. about what you found in regards to utilizing extreme temperature exposure. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think ice baths are one of the most popular recovery methods that you see. And you'll particularly see this when a, a big team like football team is doing training camp and they're all getting into the trash cans full of ice afterwards. And um, yeah, I, I also have in the book, I have a whole chapter about placebos and it turns out that placebos that are unpleasant are much more effective than ones that are that are inert or are pleasant. And so <laughs> I think ice baths, there's a definitely a, a placebo effect going on here. But it's really interesting. This this came as a surprise to me, actually, that it turns out that icing 
excuse me, and cold is actually can in some cases be uh, harmful for recovery. And the effect here is small. I don't want to say like, oh, you're completely screwed for the rest of the season if you take an ice bath, but it seems to actually slightly delay recovery. And if you think about it, um, I mean, we can just do sort of a, a thought experiment. What is icing actually doing? It's cooling your extremities, right? And so your body uh, shunts all the blood to your core. So you're basically reducing blood flow to those areas, you know, to your muscles that you're, you're worried that you're going to be sore and that you want to recover. Well, that's actually the opposite of what you want, right? Because your blood flow, I mean, that blood flow is what's going to help remove waste products, you know, flush things out, all of that. And so icing is really just sort of slowing things down. Now it also will reduce swelling. And so that's something that can reduce pain in some cases. And so there may be instances where that sort of pain uh, reducing aspect may be helpful. So for instance, if you are in a competition where you're, you're having multiple bouts, like multiple heats or something like that, it might be a little bit helpful. And I'll get to another aspect about this again in a second. Um, but really it is just slowing down recovery. And in fact, the... Um, the swelling thing is another thing. Swelling is actually your body's healing process. And so by slowing that down or reducing it, you're actually reducing recovery again. So icing is actually something that that's not helpful, but I do think that there's something else going on here. And that is, you know, I kind of alluded to the placebo effect, but, you know, while researching this book, I went in and, and tried cryotherapy. Are you familiar with that? It's, you basically get into this tank and they, they put some very cold gas in there. It feel, basically feels like you're standing naked in a snowstorm and it gives you an enormous rush. And I think that there's this other aspect of it. You know, the same, the same thing happens when you jump into an ice bath, you sort of get this, uh, and the, the adrenaline. And so it, I think that there is a mental and a psychological aspect that athletes might find useful. Um, the cryotherapy place that I went to, I guess, was really popular. This guy um, works with the Denver Broncos and a, a lot of those players like to go in and do some cryotherapy before the game. And I can understand that physically, it's not really helping them, but psychologically, it may give them, you know, sort of feeling of power. And, and so, you know, I think we need to be careful about dismissing things. You know, there may be multiple things going on that can be helpful. So even if from a physiological perspective, it may not be helpful, but psychologically making someone feel ready, that's worth a lot. And I think we need to be sure to keep in mind the psychological aspects of performance and recovery, because they're very important. So I want to go a little bit deeper into, into some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, one is I believe ice baths are more effective if you, uh, and they're actually only effective if you post a video of you on Instagram. Of you. <laughs> That's right. Is that, is that right? It Absolutely. only works if you post it, if you post it Absolutely. on your story. Yeah. yeah you have um, to but, be like flexing your biceps or something too, right? Yes. A hundred percent. But the difference between cryo versus just doing, uh, you know, cold water and, and, and a bag of ice from the liquor store um, when you consider the price difference, I don't think from everything I've seen, there's not a lot of robust data to show any real benefit to the cryo versus the old fashioned ice, correct? Oh, uh, no. In fact, uh, ice is actually going to get you colder. So the cryotherapy is actually less cold. I mean, it may feel really cold and you know, all of that, but it's, you know, if, if your goal is to get yourself as cold as possible, the ice bath is much better because, you know, water is a better conductor than air is. Okay, so let's talk about the flip side now. Let's talk yeah. about heat exposure and, and use of uh, of sauna. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting one because I think heat feels really good. So one thing we haven't talked about too much yet is a psychological aspect of recovery. You know, what is recovery? It is basically, you know, allowing your body to return to readiness, you know, do all the things that it needs to rejuvenate itself. And so, you know, it's basically about relaxing and sort of letting your body heal itself. And one of the things I found actually while working in the book is that most recovery modalities that are being marketed are really just things for people to do to sort of give them a sense of agency while they wait for their bodies to heal themselves, right? But I think heat is an interesting um, example of this because it feels really nice. Like personally, I really like um, hot tubs, hot springs, you know, et cetera. Heat feels really nice. It does increase blood flow. So there's an argument I think to be made that it can facilitate recovery a little bit there, but you know, athletes don't have a problem with blood flow. So, you know, that's really not the thing that is limiting your recovery. So we could say, well, maybe it helps with a little bit, but the, the benefit there is going to be so marginal, marginal that you probably can't even measure it. I think where it can be helpful, though, is it makes you feel good. It's a, an opportunity. You know, if sitting in the, the sauna and relaxing for 30 minutes makes you feel good and gives you a time to, like, let go of all the stresses of the day and all of that, then I think it can be extremely effective. Now, there are a lot of different kinds of, of saunas, and now infrared saunas are, are really hot, and there's this idea, you know, there's all this sort of pseudoscience language that's used around infrared saunas is an infrared, actually infrared is kind of a buzzword that is found in a lot of these recovery products. And it's just kind of, again, it's a red flag. Um, I think infrared saunas are fine. They're basically saunas that are a little less hot than regular saunas. You know, the heat is coming in a little bit different way. So if you want a sauna that's not quite as hot, it's fine. If you like the way it feels, it's good, but there's nothing magical or special about the infrared. I mean, infrared is just heat. It's a kind of heat. If you remember from physics class, it's part of the, the heat spectrum. So there's nothing magical about that. But again, I think, you know, one, one of the takeaways for me um, after writing this book is that there are a lot of things that athletes can do that make them feel good and help them recover that may not have a, a really strong physiological basis, but there's a psychological basis. And I think the psychological aspect of recovery is really important, um, you know, to really recover, you know, back when I was an athlete, we re would recover by putting our feet up and, you know, watching TV or reading a book or something like that. You know, once recovery becomes an activity that you have to do in another part of your training, it really becomes a new stressor. And so I think any kind of recovery ritual that you're doing that helps you sort of kick back and relax can be really beneficial. You know, it may not be doing something special in your blood or with your physiology, but there's a psychological aspect to recovery that's really important. And I think one aspect of recovery that athletes tend to really neglect is the, the psychological stress. You know, if you're taking a rest day and you're running around all stressed out trying to get everything else done that you didn't do the rest of the week um, because you've been busy training, you're not actually resting, you're not recovering because psychological stress is physiological stress to your body. And I think a lot of people don't recognize how important this is. And so another one of the most effective ways that you can enhance your recovery is by managing stress. And I don't say reduce stress, right? Because we all have, you know, modern life is stressful, but figuring out, you know, effective ways of managing stress and dealing with it so that it's not uh, taxing your, your physiology and it's not making you tired. You know, if your heart rate is, is raised because you're stressed out or you're, you're having a conflict with someone or something like that, you're not resting. And so anything you can do to really manage that stress will be helpful. And I think, you know, sauna can be part of that. Um, I, there's a thing called the, I, I call them the squeezy pants, but you know, the massage, um, different products, those massage pants, there's massage tools and things like that. You know, from a physiological perspective, these aren't doing anything very special. 
again, you know, the, the thing limiting an athlete's recovery is probably not blood flow. And that's really the one thing that these things do is facilitate blood flow. But if that's, if that's not the thing that's, that's reducing your recovery, then increasing, it's not going to really make a difference. But I think where it does make a difference is if it's something that makes you feel good and helps you relax, that is absolutely beneficial. And it doesn't matter, you know, what it's, what it's doing from a physiological perspective. Well, it, it makes me think of a conversation, Mike, we were having a couple of weeks back when we were going through the great debate in our industry about foam rolling. And we, oh, yeah. of the, the people will talk about that the, there's not really a whole lot of hard sciences to, to say how beneficial it is. But when you look at the low barrier for entry, the low, you know, for a $10 mm-hmm. roller, and I say, here's my science, I felt like shit. And now I don't feel like <laughs> shit anymore yeah. after doing it for 10 minutes. Like, so what's the harm in it? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I'm... <clears throat> Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I debunk in the book, but I think there's a lot of stuff where, you know, there's not good science on this, but if it makes you feel better, foam rolling is a great example of this. You know, there's not there's not great science on it, although I think the science is evolving. We just don't have a lot of good science on it yet. That's hopefully changing. Um, but if it makes you feel better, I have no problem with people doing it. And I'd never say, oh, you're you're crazy. That doesn't work. You know, we don't know. And I think, you know, I, I would discourage people from spending a lot of money, paying a lot of money or wasting a lot of effort and sort of stress on doing methods that that don't have good evidence. But if there's something like foam rolling that's cheap, that's easy to do, you can do it at home. There's not like a lot of extra stuff and it makes you feel better. Great. Yeah, I've tried foam rolling. I think it hurts. I don't like it. It doesn't help me. But I know other people who love it. And I am not, I'm going to be the last person to tell them to stop because again, you know, it goes to the psychological aspect of it. And so much of it is feeling like, you know, if you if there's something you can do that makes you feel better and feel like you're more ready, I think that's beneficial. And I I won't tell people not to do it, even if there isn't good evidence. So let's talk about the art of recovery and, and really yeah. what you're talking about is managing stressors and the role of the our autonomic nervous system and all that and how how we kind of can gauge that, whether uh, now you have, speaking of an industry, you have a whole industry of devices that people strap on themselves to try to gauge that. But talk a little bit about how much that comes into play and what can we actually do to 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 gauge where we are in in terms of being too you know sympathetically overdriven versus being in that right even keel. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned wearables because I think there's a whole industry now around these. I mean, look, I have a, a fancy sport watch. I don't use all the all the features on it, but I think I think data can be really helpful. I'm a data journalist. I'm a data geek. You know, I love data. But I think there's this tendency to want to quantify things, and there's an idea that oh, if I have this device and it's giving me a number, then that's, you know, that's more tangible or that's real. And I think one of the most important things that athletes need to develop is their own sort of qualitative sense of well-being. You need to learn what does it feel like for you to be recovered. You know, I tested out a bunch of different sports watches and devices and wearables while I was working on the book, but a lot of them have recovery scores. Now, all of these things have proprietary algorithms. They won't tell you how it's coming. I mean, most of them are based on heart rate or heart rate variability. Um, heart rate variability, by the way, is is not a great measure. There's a lot of people that think it is, but it it really it really isn't. Um, but but these things, what I found is there was a there was a huge amount of variability. I mean, I could I could be the same person wearing two different watches, and one of them would tell me I was recovered, the other one would tell me that I wasn't. So I think it's really it's it's really not a great idea to offload this important job to a device. Um, just because something gives you a number doesn't mean that it's meaningful, and it doesn't mean that it's measuring the right thing. Um, 
I think that we do have this idea that that numbers are better, but your your body has a very sophisticated algorithm for figuring out whether you're recovered, and that is, you know, your sense of well-being. And it's interesting, of all of the things, you know, I was really trying to I, I was hopeful actually when I started working on the book that I was going to find the magic metric. You know, what is the thing that you can measure that will tell you whether you're recovered or not? And I found out that there is no such thing. You know, individual athletes may have something that's a very good indicator for them, but there's nothing that's universal. You have to sort of figure it out for yourself. But the one thing that rose to the top and that seems to be the best indicator is actually mood, believe it or not. So, you know, when you're overtrained or under-recovered, you tend to be cranky, moody, you might be depressed, you know, there are different flavors of this. Um, I had one coach who said, you know, he, he would gauge overtraining in his athletes by talking to their roommate or spouse and saying, you know, is he cranky or you know, how's the mood? And I think most athletes have experienced this, you know, when you're tired, you know, you, you get, your mood is not great. And so that's, that's a really powerful way, but that's not something that can be quantified on, on a, a watch or a wearable. And I think, you know, it's really important to understand uh, a lot of these wearables, um, they're just not as accurate as you might think. And so I think they can be really good for helping you um, as you're sort of figuring this out for yourself. So you're tracking your heart rate or tracking what it tells you about sleep, but you need to have other sort of checks on that and see um, particularly something like sleep uh, wearables are not very good at measuring it. There's no wearable that can measure things like uh, what kind of sleep you're in. If, if your wearable is telling you that it can tell you how much REM sleep you have, unless it has, you know, it is measuring your brain waves, which none of these do, it's not accurate. And I think it can really lead you astray. Um, in the book, I have an example of a person who went into the sleep lab because they were really stressed out because their, their watch or wearable was telling them they weren't sleeping well. It turned out the sleep was fine. It was the watch that was defective. So you need to be really careful about putting too much credence in it. I don't think it's it's terrible to use them at all. You can look at it, but you need to sort of check it. You know, notice when you go to bed and when you get up. And yeah, if you're waking up feeling refreshed and the watch is telling you you're not, you know, trust your body and vice versa as well. You know, if it's saying, um, I actually had a friend who was really concerned. She had one of these rings and it was telling her that she was sleeping 10 hours a day. And she said, this is weird. I don't, and it told me I was you know, in bad shape because I was sleeping too much. And it just turned out that it was inaccurate. And, it, you know, when she went back and started tracking, like when she went to bed and when she got up, it was off by like over an hour or two. Or two. So, you know, check these things and don't, you know, put more credence in how you feel than in what some numbers telling you. Well, one, one point to follow up that one of the things we talk about is I do a, a quick readiness screen with, with clients. And I explain yeah. to them the difference between uh, signal and noise to say, okay, yeah. well, if one thing, if your wearable says you have a, you know, uh, a low HRV, I'm not going to worry about that. But if you have a low HRV and we do a breath hold test, and then we do a, um, you know, a, a grip strength test. And now we start to see it starts coming up low on all these things. Yeah. Okay. Now we may have some actual signal that, yeah. that you're a little bit down, but one thing, and even one thing, even if it was all three things and it's just one day, I'm not going to freak out about that. Yeah. It's just a little bit of noise that we're getting here. And it's something to make, take note of, but not anything to like, Oh, I got to stay in bed today. Cause my, my strap on my wrist said that. I'm yeah. at 30%. Absolutely. 100%. So we're going to, you know, switch, switch gears a little bit here and let's sure. talk about the role of breath work and, and meditation and visual, visualization and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. 
Um, I think one of the things that really fell out of my research is just the importance of, you know, I talked about it in the terms of stress reduction earlier, but I think anything you can do to sort of quiet your mind and, and you know, I think meditation and breath work, these kinds of things can be wonderful, wonderful tools for managing stress. And so I don't think that there's any one universal thing that works for everyone. You have to sort of try it out and, and find something that works for you. A lot of people find a lot of help with meditation. Other people just can't can't do it. And that's fine. Like, I don't want you, if you're trying to reduce your stress and you're, you're feeling stressed out because you're not doing your stress reduction technique properly, like that's, that's not helping. Right. So you want, you want to find something that works for you. And I think there's a lot of uh, interesting different um, aspects and different tools out there that can help. Um, but I, I'm a fan of meditation myself. Um, although I think it's something that you really have to make part of your routine because it's easy to blow it off and forget, or you say, oh yeah, I was going to meditate this week and I didn't. And I think, you know, one, one bit of advice that I like to give to people is that it's just fundamentally important that you have a daily recovery ritual. And this isn't just about exercise. It's something, you know, you need a time in your day that is dedicated to just kicking back and relaxing where there's no expectation of being productive. There's no expectation of anything where you're just literally relaxing. And this seems so easy. It's kind of sad that we we are living at a time where people have to like put this on their calendar or plan for it. But I think it's important and it needs to be, and again, this is an individual thing. It, it may be sitting on your porch, watching the sunset. It might be, uh, you know, every, every night before bed, you spend an hour reading uh, a book before, or, or you go for a walk with your partner. I mean, there are a lot of different ways this can look, but it's really a time when mentally you are unwinding. You're not like monkey brain and physically, you know, that, that you're really having some downtime and uh, not, not stress on your body. So uh, along those lines, um, you know, we uh, like to say that we get a lot of our best training and, and conditioning ideas from outside of that world. And one yeah. of the books that, that really stands out is Dan Heath's book, Upstream. Now, the reason why I love it is because what you just talked about is the first time you really talked about anything proactive, where it's this is just mm -hmm. your routine every day, yeah. where most other recovery stuff is reactive, where yeah. I beat the crap out of myself and then I run to my my yeah. you know Theragun to try to fix that. So how much of recovery really is just having really thoughtful training um, that you don't need to run to all these different modalities all the time? Oh, 100%. I think most of, most of these modalities are are unnecessary. And I think the more you can simplify your routine, the better, you know, what if you can read, you can take 30 minutes off of your, your exercise routine, because you're getting rid of this nonsense that you don't need. And then you can use that 30 minutes to actually relax and to do something that's more helpful. You know, I think your recovery should not be its own source of stress, but it's really easy with all these products and all of this. This marketing really creates this idea that there's a perfect way and an optimal way to do all this stuff. And this fear that if I'm not optimizing it, I'm really missing out. But that's just nonsense. You know, there is no, you know, I think optimization can be helpful sometimes, but, you know, your body actually is very good at recovering if you just give it time and energy to do that. And so this idea that you have to get everything correct down to the third decimal point, that's just marketing. And I think we need to let go of that. You know, the secret is there is no secret. Um, 
master the basics and everything else will fall into place. You know, the person, the athlete who's really mastering things like reducing stress, sleeping uh, well, eating right, you know, they're going to have such an advantage over the person who's running around worried about getting the, the latest supplement, uh, the latest tool for, you know, doing something to their muscle, the cryotherapy, all of this stuff, um, because they're, they're really giving themselves what they need to recover. And that is relaxation and time and, and that lack of stress. You know, again, the recovery should not be a stressful thing. Should be and I think it's also important, you know, as we get uh, towards the end here is looking at the lens at which you're looking at uh, any of these things with, and that, yes, yeah. even though it may be effective, or this may be the routine of X, Y, or Z, uh, elite athlete, if you're just the casual exerciser, you don't need that. And yeah. nor should you be even, you don't need to need to train to that level where you're that beat up that you need that much recovery, right? That's Cause you're right. in more yeah. for a long continuous haul, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, you have people that are doing, you know, a, a 30 minute workout on the treadmill at the gym who think they need to go recover for another 30 minutes. You know, it's kind of like the the person who's going and eating the energy bar, or the big protein shake after, you know, and then they can't figure out why they're gaining weight because they're doing all this exercise. Well, it's because you didn't need all of that. And, you know, those recovery foods are fine, but they shouldn't be replacing, you know, your regular meals. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic, Christy. We can't thank you enough for your time. So before we wrap up, tell us about what you're working on next. Yeah, I'm actually uh, finishing up a short run podcast for Scientific American about the role of uncertainty in science. So really excited about that. And uh, I have a feature coming out in the January issue of Scientific American about vitamin D. It's called the rise and fall of vitamin D. So I think it's kind of a good uh, window on how science works and sort of uh, the scientific process. So well, we'll certainly have all the links to, to all the ways you can follow Christy because she puts out some great stuff. And thank you again for that. And want to thank you all for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.